and welcome to the Inspiring Capital Podcast. This is the show for the purpose-driven person who isn't afraid to have the difficult conversations about the challenges and opportunities of having a positive impact in their personal lives and at work. There's a lot to talk about around impact and purpose these days, and we feel and hear from our community a need for more honest and pragmatic conversations about the complexities of social and environmental change. In this episode, Nell Derek Debevoice, founder and CEO of Inspiring Capital, sat down with Simone Nicole McGurl. Simone is a specialist in stakeholder engagement, governance, and business development, currently the Director of Board Relations at the Environmental Defense Fund. She is a board member of the Ms. Foundation and adjunct professor at NYU Wagner. Today, Nell and Simone tackle the difficult and majorly important conversation around women and money. I'm Bernadette Hopin, Community and Brand Manager at Inspiring Capital. It's time to plug in, and I'm going to hand it off to Nell and Simone to dive right into the struggle. Hey, Simone. Hi, Nell. <laughs> it's so fun to be here with you, um, and such a good topic. I love talking about women and money. Women and money. Money and love, women. Love, women. Love it. Money, cash. Um, yeah, so we are going to get through some great stuff in our typical Inspiring Capital podcast way of diving into the hard and the struggle, and you are the best person to do that with. And so. also a little bit of like the glamour and the possibility, I hope. Excellent. That's a yes. 100% the glamour. We have a little narrative arc here. We're going to start with um, the wage gap, Mm -hmm. right? Gets a lot of attention. Um, Women's Day is right about now, and that's an easy thing to kind of pick on Mm -hmm. and be bummed out about. Um, So I think we all know some of the stats. They vary. Women make... 80-ish cents on the dollar for men, um, depending on the place and the industry. Um, So what's the problem here? Like, talk a little bit about root causes as you see them. Well, from what I can tell, and in the reading that I've done, and my work with the Ms. Board and the Women's Building and Community in Albany, a lot of it comes down to kind of a certain amount of tracking of sorts. Like, how is it that most women who are working in domestic positions are women of color, for example. So it's, I think a big part of it is the type of work that has been available to most women is work that is just not well compensated. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's the admin positions, the assistants, the housekeepers, the direct service positions. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like a lot of women are just not ever set up for success on making lots of money, but also from a social kind of structure perspective, haven't been encouraged to think of themselves as needing to be the primary earner. Mm -hmm. So I feel like in my life as a millennial, a big part of what I think is different than with my mom, even though she's unusual and we can come back to that, is this desire to be the breadwinner and make money and have agency and have those choices. But historically, no. I mean, women were encouraged to be the head of the household and to not have to go out and hit the pavement and earn the money and have that kind of autonomy. Yeah, totally. And so do you think that, though, you know, it is those service roles, right? Mm -hmm. Even if we look at the corporate world, it's 10 tends to be back office service roles, admin or, or other internal services. Are those things actually not maybe worth as much because they're not specifically bringing in revenue or have they been devalued because women are in there right like where's the chicken and egg here i'm going to zoom out and answer that question in a way that might sound a little theoretical but we have we live in a structure like a capitalist economy that's rooted in um more of a masculine like male dominant behavior and so 
I think that in that type of capitalist regime, mm-hmm. we do devalue work that isn't directly connected to capital. But as a human, and as an evolved human, like the people like you and I are... <laughs> And our listeners. And our listeners. Love listeners. And the amazing people who support Inspiring Capital and participate in their programs. I think that there's a desire to get more than just money. And that it's not just money that matters. Mm-hmm. And so we have to actually talk about how do we evolve our assumptions of capitalism and start to change what work we pay for. Yeah. So I'm not saying that we should take a model where like everyone makes the same salary. But I don't necessarily believe that we have to underpay people who are not working on the sales side or on the biz dev side. Yeah. Or the nonprofit side. You know, that's a stickier question. You know, in the nonprofit sector, there isn't fine like there isn't a pay structure for nonprofit fundraisers where if they raise more money, they make more money. Right. But they are still incredibly well compensated compared to their peers. Mm. So if you are working for a direct service agency and you're the fundraiser, you're making probably 50% more than the social worker who's delivering the service that the fundraiser is marketing for. And so that lack of equity is very disconcerting to me. And the difference in pay also from nonprofit CEOs, again, to direct service workers. So anytime someone's providing the relationship management work, the things that create operational efficiencies and those functions, we don't pay them. But we want all of that done. If it doesn't happen, you don't have a product. So I think we need to get in much better alignment about what work is valued. Mm. Um, I don't, for you know, why are teachers paid 12 cents an hour, you know, to take care of the most vulnerable and most useful and most important asset, which is like eventually the future of our labor force. Yeah. So I think we need, we are out of alignment. Yeah. There's a, a resource really deep way. allocation problem there. And, and, a, and a paradigm shift is necessary around how you think about it. Yeah. So it's about the, mo- the shifting of the money, but the shifting of a mindset where we say, oh, you are not in sales and biz dev and fundraising. You should still have a really solid check. Yeah. Totally. Does does some of the like conscious capitalism movement start to help with that, do you think? I think the conscious capitalism space, the kind of circular economy, the new economy, mm-hmm. all of those conversations, if you're looking at the work of like Gar Alperwetz, um, his work talks about like the future of the economy, the future of capitalism. I have read all of those papers and most of them talk about sustainability, mm-hmm. but not about equity Mm -hmm. and the wage gap so i don't think those conversations have a gender lens and unsurprisingly a lot of the conversations are being facilitated by guys (laughs) and so they have a blind spot where they're not thinking with a gender lens about how these can be tools for advancing equity and not just you know planetary sustainability right the one piece that maybe is hopeful, you know, if we look at like the Fink letter, mm-hmm. I think there starts to be a recognition of those ESG, right? Mm-hmm. The environmental, social, and governance factors being directly linked to financial success, mm-hmm. right? And so maybe though it's not direct, that can start to get to where it's not just the front line. I literally sold a thing and yeah. so I'm paid well, but I'm doing some of those human, social, environmental things that yeah. that. And those are directly linked to our business success. So maybe there's a step toward it. At I least. think I'm. Oh, I'm hopeful for right. sure. But I'm also rather confident that we're not going to either. We'll make this tremendous progress so fast that I will be like, "This is amazing! I didn't see it coming." Or in a more likely scenario, I'm going to be like 60, and I'll be like, "We're going to fight for wage equity." Still, this might be the year. Right. And as a black woman, both 
wages and wealth, right. I'm getting the short straw pretty right. much every day all the time. So trust me, I want this to work out and I'm trying to be <laughs> optimistic. And the Larry Fink letter in particular was, a, I think I think it will look back and say that was a real tipping point yeah. for the advancement of ESG for mainstream investors. Like it, it's a huge, it's a huge commitment and articulation of a philosophy of what is like, where does value come from? Yeah. And they're going to need partners who help them determine what are their impact metrics and how are they managing for risk and who's holding them accountable. Totally, totally. So, I'm, so I want to get to. Um, I mean, wealth is our next topic, right? Because mm-hmm. wages are one thing and, and important, but mm-hmm. not probably the biggest driver of equity, which is wealth. Um, and and I want to bring in um, the race conversation a bit too, right? Because yeah. obviously that's huge here. I mean, the gender thing is our primary topic, but mm-hmm. impossible to not look at race as well when we're talking about these numbers. So speak a little bit about that, about your experience, both as a black woman, but then also in things like the Ms. Foundation, where you're yeah. thinking so much about women of color. So when I started off in my career, I was uh, the board chair for a half million dollar women's foundation in mm-hmm. Albany called Holding Our Own. And that is where I first started to understand how an intersectional analysis, which involves saying like, for a woman of co- for a woman who is also a person of color, who is also disabled and also from the South, like how do those factors in her identity come together to either give her advantage or give her disadvantage? And the answer is it's usually disadvantage um, <laughs> as far as social equity is concerned, right? And so I feel very fortunate that the people I worked with there, like Barbara Smith, um, who's an amazing black feminist icon and leader, helped me to understand that the only way to build community wealth is by investing in women, like investing capital in women, mm-hmm. not just like giving them good mentors, but paying oh. them well, growing their businesses, etc. And unfortunately, we just don't, we haven't, we haven't done that mm-hmm. as a country. And I feel like black women are one of, like, if you look at groups of women, they have been working the longest in this country. They've been encouraged to be working. They've also had, they've right. had no choice. <laughs> right. They've had no choice. So they've been fo- essentially like forced to have to be working all the time mm-hmm. at really low paying jobs. And there have not been a lot of like black women entrepreneurs that people have heard of and black women working in finance. And I don't a hundred percent believe the saying that you can't be what you can't see, mm. but I do believe that having some sort of modeling so it becomes accessible and then supportive resources like a good education and access to the right networks, it it could be solved. Mm-hmm. I got lucky in some ways. Like the privilege that I have is that my mother was the primary breadwinner in our family and still is. My dad is an amazing man. But he's also, you know, a full-time, air quotes, Reiki healer. Um, and he's like a spiritual man and it's been really helpful to have that as a counterpart but my mom was like you're gonna make money that's what you want to have a nice lifestyle i know you'd like good things and you want to have choice so go get a like a career going that's going to give you the opportunities that you want to have to live where you want to live how you want to be there yeah but it's not the story for you know most women of color yeah one thing i will say is that for um, the first time I read this paper, I think it was from Pew Charitable Trust, that said the black upper middle class has been growing faster than it ever has over the last 10 years. So even though the narrative we have about black women and and wealth is still like, oh, black women have no money, that is changing uh, in in leaps and bounds, Mm -hmm. but it's definitely not catching up with white women and it's not catching up with white men at all. Right, right. 
dig a little bit more into um, that luck, as you put it, which I think is combined with a very healthy dose of incredible perspective, maturity, dedication, obviously intelligence, talent um, that has gotten you here. We, for listeners, we refer to Simone as the career ninja um, <laughs> in, in our uh, in our programs when she speaks and, and leads workshops. Um, but dig into some more of the root cause of that. I mean, incredible. So just the context at home is mm-hmm. huge, right? And then having that person, that, that woman, mother figure be yeah. not only by definite, you know, just by example, setting away, but then also really encouraging you to be making money. What else? What were the other factors getting you here to this glamorous spot of? I mean, if we, if I can be so candid, it's class privilege. You know, I went to this, I went to a panel at Sundance and it was about women and making films. Surprise. It's Sundance. That's Mm -hmm. a good topic, right? And one woman in the audience asked a panelist and said, how did you get funding from um, J.P. Morgan Chase or something like that to film your, to do your documentary? And the lady was very kind of evasive. And she was like, oh, well, I just, you know, I don't know. I mean, I went to business school. I think that's really the answer. And I was like, so you took an accounting class and then you magically, no, it's because you went to Warren and you like knew the guy who knew the guy who ran the thing because you had access to that network. And that network is comes back to class privilege. And so in my family, um, you know, the history of wealth and kind of upper middle class black families is a story of who was the minister in your town, who was the one doctor or the one lawyer who like migrated from the South, came to Chicago, had a family. And so my mother has always been around people who were strivers and who had the opportunity to have some track with their striving. So because she was the daughter of the minister, she met every local business owner. You know, she had a network. And she has given me the gift of career advice my entire life. Our relationship isn't built around, like, bake sales and soccer, which is a fine thing to build your life around, but isn't the story I have. It's built around, Mom, I'm trying to negotiate my first raise. Mom, I um, got a promotion and I now have a you know larger retirement package. How should I invest it? Or who should I talk to about it? Mom, I'm going to go to college and here's, I'm going to major in sociology. I still want to No, you're not. Yeah. She let me do that. And I'm always like a little side eye to her for that. But all to say, she has... She's she lived it. She has a PhD. She has a great career, and so she's always been able to counsel me. And I didn't have to go out and look for a, a mentor. I had my mom, mm-hmm. who w- could be an amazing mentor for me professionally, yeah. more than anything else. Totally. The negotiation point is something I want to pick up on because women mm-hmm. are notoriously pretty dismal at that. Oh my god, I um, love <laughs> negotiating and getting more money. And like anytime there's an opportunity, I I'm gonna go for it because that's the thing is you're it's an, you can't. It's not a person. Like, people look... I think a lot of women look at negotiation with their boss as, I got to get this... I have to ask this person for something for me. It's like their personal money. It's not. Companies are not... Like, they're made up of people, but it's not like your boss is going to go broke because you wanted to make another 20% on your salary. So you got to ask for the money that you are building because you are the product like you the employees are the reason the company exists so ask for ask for more than you're worth and then land someplace near it totally love it what are the downsides are there any downsides of your approach to all this over time probably but uh (laughs) as of today they seem to be working pretty well no um i i have had to work 
a lot in the last five to ten years of like really trying to grow and understand for better or for worse how I'm perceived um, so that I can have more of that n- career ninja skill, right? I think in your 20s, at least in my 20s, I handled a lot of things like every. I just had a hammer and I'm just going to smash everything. Um, and as, as a mature 33, I now have a better sense of how to partner with people and talk about, you know, like how this is going to be good for both of us, essentially. Mm-hmm. But overall, I'm really glad that I've been very assertive about how much money I want to make. Yeah. You know, when I started making six figures, I... I had a real goal. I was like, I want to make six figures before I'm 30. I'm going to stay in the nonprofit sector, but it seems almost impossible. It's not impossible, FYI. And I had a recruiter who was negotiating with me, and she was like, well, you know, they're they're only paying 99. And I said, well, I'm only taking 100. And then I hung up on her. And it was it. They had offered me seventy five. I negotiated up to a hundred. Like it was. It was more of the emotional sense of like, I'm not doing this. This is all I want. Yeah. Is this one thousand dollars? Now that I wouldn't necessarily advise someone to do it that way, but it felt it was really gratifying for me. Yeah. And totally. validating. I felt like I could ask for anything after that. Totally. What about that perception piece? I mean, I think there are some research backing and certainly opinion pieces, you know, that when women are assertive about anything, Mm -hmm. much less about money, it's not seen well, right? And there can really be a backlash. I mean, I'm I'm like a six foot tall black woman who is basically (laughs) 300 pounds for most of my life. I could like give you a hug and you're like, oh, you're being scary. Like there's, it's, you know, it's a bit of a rock and a hard place. Um, I think that, I mean, at this point in my, my life I wish it wasn't true that people are going to perceive me as being aggressive because I'm black and tall um, but that is that is real I really enjoy the relationship I have with my boss at EDF where you know I work during the day because we have a super candid relationship and so I'm able to say to him if you keep over talking me I'm not going to have meetings with you and he goes, I'm so sorry. And I'm glad that you told me that. And so I feel like I've been able to negotiate a lot of flexibility and opportunity in the organization and room for growth. Yeah. Because we essentially had like a conversation where I said, I'll be honest with you, but you can't retaliate. And if you do, I'm going to tell you that that's what I've been afraid of and I see it happening. And we've really stuck to that for the last year. And it's given us, I think, a really solid ground to grow from together as a team. Yeah. Awesome. Advice? What are the takeaways? I mean, this sounds really incredible, but really hard. I mean, it's hard. You've worked really hard on it, as you said. Um, So for listeners who maybe are just very simply headed into or wish they were headed into a negotiation about their raise, what's what's a concrete Simone tip? The piece of advice I wish I would have received sooner would be when you're in the room and you're doing your negotiation, you just have to do it once. So you just have to be brave, like 10% braver once. And then the next time you've already done it and you're able to say, oh, I know how to do this. I've, I've got it. So I'd say be 10% braver. And remember, it's like just that one time you have to do it. And, you know, a fundraising tip is when you make the ask, stop talking. That, yeah, 
people will ask for things and then not hear the response they want or a quick enough response and they start backing themselves out like it's this has been proven so if i ask you for a hundred thousand dollars and you're quiet for a couple seconds i'm like well maybe 75 is fine and next thing you know i'm giving you money and that's that's not where we want to land not ideal so no glass for what you want and then just stop talking i love it um, so our last topic before we get to some quick fire questions and wrap up, um, you know, the wealth gap being such a problem, uh, a root, without equity, you can't build wealth, right? Equity, not in the gender racial equity piece, but equity, like owning pieces of things. Yes. Um, and so women in entrepreneurship is something mm-hmm. that I know you think about and support a lot. Um, and the numbers are dismal, um, right? The I think it was just, we had a little spate of specifically black women founders mm-hmm. raising cash, right? I think like there was the 12th black woman ever like yeah. in all of history and time to yeah. raise a million dollars and then well, the 13th 14th followed yeah. and she got a million dollars like let's just like, pause and look at how much money that she, she got a million dollars that was that was it um which again i'm sure she put it to good use and was able to scale her business and i hope everything turned out to be amazing and like all these guys all over silicon valley are like i have an idea for a photo sharing app number 200 you know 273 i'd like to raise 20 million dollars and they're like okay yeah, specifically $58.2 billion For example, were raised yeah. by all male founders in 2016. So so there's some money available. So the $1.46 billion that all the women everywhere raised is is shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how are you involved with that? Or how can we get more money to female founders? Yeah, so I actually just started working with a woman named Gayla Jennings O'Brien, and she's running a VC fund that's focused on what she's cons- calling kind of like intentional investing, which means that taking your values and putting them into your investments and not and assuming that women of color founders in the tech space can get market returns. So it's like this idea of pursuing returns without compromise. It's not about doing social good. It's the next Uber founder could and should be a black woman. And essentially, the mainstream investment community has a blind spot that for Gala, as with her investment background, is the sweet spot of intent ventures. Mm-hmm. And it's been so exciting to me to be working with her. And you know, the the website goes live tomorrow, and Yay. it's like a it's like we're here. And in our conversations, a lot of what we talk about is just there isn't a community that can there isn't a, there isn't a connection, a natural social connection between traditional investors who are tend to be white, straight, already upper middle class men and like black women who are going to be founders. Like where are they meeting at Starbucks and just striking up a conversation? They don't go to the same churches. We're a very segregated society still. You know, most white people have one black friend and it's probably me you know and that's okay you're great in some way yeah thank you and we because there isn't a space for those natural just oh i met this guy at this thing and now he's going to invest in my company i went to business school i went to yeah i went to business school for example (laughs) and so i think what we need to do is actually think about how do we decrease racial segregation uh, writ large so that there's actual just inter like more chances for coincidence Mm. and how do we help how do we help white guys who are traditional investors look around the room and say, huh, this is a blind spot, not a, um, like it's a missed market opportunity. Women of color are the fastest growing segment of the entrepreneurial market. And that's just a f- business fact. It's not a do good fact. Totally. So I think a lot of it comes down to like getting some real champions um, and no, you know, looking at people who are, are doing walking the walk and talking the talk. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I love that. And Kayla is such a great story because it's a double whammy Mm -hmm. on her as a woman investor, Mm -hmm. uh, which also we know is is horrifically underrepresented and part of the problem, right? You hire people who look like you, you invest in people like you, not because you're evil, but because you have an unconscious bias and we all just like people who look like us. Yeah, you want to feel safe and have fun and have fun with people that you're like, oh, I could catch a beer with that guy. And if you don't feel that way... You're probably not going to be as inclined to hire them and you'll talk about fit and all of this stuff. I want to go back to one point, though, and just say that I think one of the other challenges for women in the investing space is that a lot of women just my partner's dad invests and loves it. And so growing up, she was taught she was taught about stock options and dividends. My family wasn't talking about that. So I'm lear- I, my, my investment literacy, I have, de- I have been very intentional and I read a lot of books and I listen to podcasts. But I think for a lot of folks who are in finance, they grew up around people who talked about finance. And so again, it comes back to this kind of exposure and literacy and modeling where we just need to make it easier for people to understand well, what is investing and how does it work? Which is the other thing I like about Gala's about Gala's work because Intent Ventures has an advocacy education campaign where they're focused on getting women of color into the investing space and kind of giving them the basic tools to, you know, jump in and, and make some money and have some equity. Awesome. So good. Um, so much more. Chapter two coming soon. Um, let's do our quick fire round. Uh, okay, I'm ready. Fire away. <laughs> ready? Yeah. What's your favorite book? Agile. The, it's called the the Radical Manager by Stephen Denning. It's a book about agile software development, but as a management philosophy, and it's it's one of my favorite books. That's not nerdy at all. That's, no, that's no, cool. it's totally cool. Yeah, it's like the coolest book. <laughs> do you do you put a cover on it when you have it on the subway, or are you just like out there? No, I'm nerd? just out and about. Yeah, I suggest like... it to people. I like have a downloaded <laughs> copy of it. But there's like, like a summary of it that I share with friends. If you want it, I'll send it. Yeah, to Yeah, I don't you. think I've gotten that. I'm yeah. offended. I'm uh, either like beyond we, hope or no. Like, I think it's already. It just it transcends the important things like that book. Uh, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Um, waking up and seeing my wife and our little cats. Mm, and, and then going to the gym. But really, it's 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 the wife and the cats. <laughs> or the lady husband. I'm sure she's going to hear this. Oh, jeez. Lady husband. Sorry, Mimi. Sorry, Mimi. Um, and so once you get out of the bed, mm-hmm. what do you do first? Um, I am really into like fitness as a way to express gratitude right now. So I think of it as not like an act, almost like an act of prayer, like kind of like a sacred thing. So I, I feel really motivated by wellness right now. And, and that kind of like draws me out and is what I focus on for the first part of the day. Awesome. Love that. Um, inserting a quick, quick fire question. What does glamour mean to you? Um, <laughs> I'm laughing because I was telling my friend at work, Audrey, a story today about, um, I think her name is Bozma St. John. She's the brand strategist for Uber. Ah. And she's this like six foot tall black woman with an afro, like the same size as my entire body. And she wears like sequin jumpsuits to work. And I wear like really fun clothes. And she just has an attitude of like, I'm amazing, period. Like, not, I'm amazing, so get used to it. I'm amazing, so like, it's just like, I'm amazing. And I think that glamour is about inhabiting that, like, in the deepest parts of your soul so that you're acting from a place of, like, incredible security and confidence. Yes. Trademark that. Mm-hmm. All right. On a slightly more wonky but really okay. important note, what is one thing that listeners can do today, maybe tomorrow if they're listening to it as they fall asleep, to live a more impactful life? Start small. I think a lot of people, particularly millennials and especially women, 
say, I gotta have like my whole life's purpose figured out. Like I'm 26 and I gotta figure out how I'm gonna solve hunger in Rwanda. And that's, maybe you'll get there, but that's literally someone's life's work. So by the time they're 90, they have maybe had a 10% increase in who got food in a place. So maybe what you do is say, maybe I'll join my community board or maybe I'll understand, like, you know, I'll do some volunteer work. Just start start local and start small and realize that these are career journeys that you're on and it's going to take you your lifetime to figure it out. So just, like, don't, don't try and solve the refugee crisis. Just try and be nice to a homeless person on your subway. A refugee homeless person, maybe. For example. <laughs> awesome. So good. Well, such a joy. Chapter two coming at some point. Thanks uh, so much. Thank this you. Really fun. really fun conversation. Great points. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for tuning in and make sure to subscribe, rate our show and leave us your feedback in the comments. For more information about this podcast, visit inspiringcapital.ly backslash podcast. A big thank you to Nell Derek Debevoise and Simone Nicole McGurl for diving so thoughtfully into the struggle. Signing off, this is Bernadette Hopin, and until next time, stay inspired. Stay inspired.